When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Digital identification is becoming an increasingly common part of many of our lives. Many of us might need it in order to get to vote, to say who we are, or even to prove that we've had our COVID vaccination. But is there an over-reliance in blind trust in these systems? And what can be done in order to make sure that our data is both private and secure when we're entrusting it to digital IDs? I'm Danny Palmer. This is ZDNet Security Update. With me to discuss this is Professor Carsten Maple of the University of Warwick and the Alan Turing Institute. Thanks for joining me, Professor Marple. So first of all, how is it that ID schemes like this have become part of our lives and what are they designed to do? Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Danny. Um, what's interesting is where you said uh, right at the beginning about this over-reliance on, on digital identity and the, the massive scope that it's used uh, in. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the ways that they're used and how they um, are, are developed and, and who develops them and how we might trust uh, these systems. And I guess from, from that perspective, it's worth me telling about um, my own perspective. Um, and it comes principally from a, a large project that we have at the Alan Turing Institute. So myself and John Crowcroft, another professor, um, we lead this four-year project called Trustworthy Digital Infrastructure for Identity Systems. So we're about a year and a half in now into this uh, project, and we're trying to create an understanding of the emerging risks, requirements for assuring trustworthy outcomes, and the design opportunities and interventions that can enhance such assurances. So we're fortunate um, that we are funded through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's a $5 million grant, so just over £4 million um, over this four-year period. And we want to make sure that we bring together um, the technological solutions that really create an effective social intervention. So we're, we're, we're fortunate at the Turing, it's the National Institute for Data Science and AI, that we've had contributions in this program from more than 35 researchers, uh, project managers, research engineers, all working on, on this program so far. And we've had um, the, the benefit of a, a whole range of stakeholders that, that help us, including the World Bank ID4D program, ID for Africa, and a number of national identity practitioners, some of which I'll, I'll probably no doubt talk about later on uh, in this um, discussion. One of the things I should say is for, for, for anyone watching or listening, um, there is a technical briefing that we, we released recently, which talks about some of these facets of trustworthiness in digital identity systems. So, you know, what does it mean to be trustworthy? Because of that term that you said about reliance and trust, Danny. Um, and we'd welcome feedback on that so, and collaboration to make sure that we can create this framework that gives a capability to measure whether one of these digital identity systems should be trusted by users 
and by governments because um, there's a multi-stakeholder uh, initiative going on here. People who are developing systems, people who are um, uh, citizen groups who are looking after the rights of citizens, governments, and all have got different agendas. And just because we're in a context where we might see something from a UK or a US or a European perspective, um, it's quite different from, from maybe a Far Eastern perspective or an African uh, perspective or anywhere in the global south. So we, we, we have to understand that trust means different things uh, to different people. And I, I'm really proud that at the Turing, we have this trustworthy digital identity interest group that I lead with one of the uh, researchers at the Turing, Dr. Chris Hicks. And we launched that last December and already we've got more than 100 members from around the world. Um, our most recent meeting, um, we managed to get people concurrently from New Zealand, from um, Australia, India, uh, Peru, Brazil, um, the East and West Coast of America, as well as Europe. So, you know, for some people, it was like four o'clock in the morning. But bringing together these academics, these people from standards bodies and public sector practitioners, technical people, social uh, experts, um, really means that we can really delve into this problem about making trustworthy digital identity systems. And I think um, that that's what's important that we understand that, as, as you mentioned, digital ID is used a lot. So we've got to think of this digital ID as just a digital form of um, an identity system that we, we know. So, so the most common identity system that people know about is passports or, or maybe driving license. Um, and these kind of uh, identity systems, we want to have digital versions. Um, and, and the drive for this, certainly in the UK, is a recognition that the digital economy is the economy of the future. That's where a lot of spending is happening. Um, and what they want to do is create, um, and they're doing this through a, a current trust framework that they're developing and there's some consultant uh, consultation period right now uh, available on that. Um, and we are contributing to that uh, with others, but they want to have this identity that is as legally valid as other forms of ID. So just as if you go into a, a shop and you want to buy something, you need to show some form of photographic ID, um, you can have a digital ID which can be as trusted uh, as that. So that, that's what we want to do. Uh, the idea around digital identity of course, it's been used by private enterprise a lot. You'll, you'll know uh, many of the viewers also or, or listeners will understand that sometimes when you want to log on to a website, you can log on through your social identity. So you can use Facebook or, or um, your Apple ID or your Google ID to log on to all kinds of different services. So private enterprise has seen this um, importance of a digital identity, but now we want to see that um, as a way to improve public service and governance and to lay the foundations for a digitally inclusive and competitive environment uh, across the world. So um, I, th I think it gives some idea of uh, what digital identity is currently, I, I hope, and um, how, how many different ways it's, it's being used.
Thanks, that was a really good introduction to the subject. Uh, I suppose one of the places where we're seeing digital identification discussed a lot at the moment, um, here in the UK in particular, is with uh, regards to uh, COVID uh, passports. Now, the, you, can, you are now uh, told to, you know, if you want to go to certain places, you need to download a specific app and you, it gives you your QR code for being able to you know, get, get, get in and go out of places. Um, you, you mentioned inclusivity there as part of this. Um, the digital ID sounds all well and good, and it's meeting is very useful for a lot of people. Uh, but when it comes to uh, these projects, what does this sort of mean for uh, people who, uh, for example, you know, you know, I've, you know, I've got a smartphone. I'm sure a lot of people here ha are watching this have smartphones. What does that mean for someone who, for example, is still using something like a Nokia 3310 and, um, you know, because you know, as resilient as those things were, it's probably certain still in existence today. And don't necessarily have the technology on them in order to uh, take part in this because as you said uh, part of the importance of uh, this is inclusivity and there is a risk that uh, if this uh, if digital ids uh, here and around the world aren't implemented correctly uh, people could get excluded from the process and if you are looking to have a digital id for you know, a national passport for example or your id that's going to cause issues I think you, you, you've hit on something really important there, Danny, and that's why of these facets, and I'll tell you a bit more about them in, in a while, one of them is resilience, right? And uh, another is about the ethics, including the fairness. It is really important that when we bring in these technologies um, and these systems that we think about how it can be accessible to all, right? And that's something that's very important to us at the, uh, at the Turing. Now, what you've got to understand, if we think about inclusivity, let's think about global inclusivity, right? So what I can tell you is uh, the UN has got a set of sustainable development goals, and goal 16 is peace, justice, and strong institutions, and 16.9 says that there should be a provision to provide legal identity for all by 2030, right? Because at the moment, one billion people in the world, one billion do not have any legal recognition of identity. And a lot of those are in lower income countries, of course, but some, as we've heard in the last year or two, uh, about things about having to um, use identity for voting, etc., and, and other things. Some in the UK do not have a legal um, uh, identity. So the thing is, what we need to do is make sure we have the opportunity to give people uh, an identity. Now, giving one billion people paper-based identity is, is a big challenge. Um, so how can we make sure we achieve that target by 2030? Well, it's using technological means, but understanding what the technological limitations are. So just quite rightly, as you said, Danny, it's a real good point. You know, what about those people who've got Nokia 3310s? How many people do you think in, in uh, the areas that we interact with, so I'm talking about in, in parts of Africa, so some parts of Nigeria, Rwanda, um, Uganda, etc. how many people have, have got um, smartphones? Well, actually not many. What they, what they have is maybe a feature phone, right? I mean, these feature phones are actually quite cheap, they're sort of $25, which is not necessarily, you know, as cheap as it might sound because of, of what people are paid, but actually there are a lot of low powered phones, but we've been working at the Turing on ways that you can get identity onto one of those 3310s, Danny, using that technology. Uh, we do something quite smart um, 
led by what, uh, two of our researchers, uh, Chris Hicks and Vasilius. Um, and what they are doing is they're using the SIM overlay. So that's a bit technical for, for some people, um, but, but not for everybody I know on this call. But what they're doing is using this um, overlay. So they're using the power in the SIM card rather than the power on the phone to provide some um, secure, cryptographically secure identity. So what we are trying to do is understand you know, the limitations. We're trying to understand how can we do things like facial recognition or fingerprint recognition, where in some parts of the world, people just don't have fingerprints because they've done such manual forms of work. So, so those things that, that you mentioned are really important. And, and the Turing is looking at the moment at you know, legal recognition for undocumented populations, fair access to financial services. And I should say, that is the reason that the Gates Foundation has given us this money, because they're saying, rather than saying um, that we will only give financial support, and, and in some places in the world this is true, without an identity because of fraud and things like that, how can we just overcome this and ensure that we meet this sustainable development goal? So we want to try and give uh, a practical identity so that we can have fairer access to financial services. And that includes people actually in the margins of the UK banking system, because there are some. Um, we also working around transparency for what we call hidden home workers in the global garment trade. So there's a lot of people who work from home, don't have the same rights that you might expect, don't have an identity and need to have the proper care that, that, that workers need. So, so that's what's driving us um, at, at the moment and to address that in a fair and, and transparent way. Thanks for that. You mentioned security uh, a moment ago. I mean, how does that uh, play a role in this? And we've seen a not, so, not necessarily in the UK where we still have elections for now by you know, going and putting a bit of paper into a, into a ballot box. In the US, for example, and uh, countries like uh, um, other countries around around Europe, they have uh, they they are looking into digital voting, which you know, presumably at some point you might need a digital ID in order to take part in that. I mean, how can we make sure that these systems are secure and that these digital IDs are secure? Because when it comes to voting, you have to you know inherently trust that the person you are counting the vote of is the person they say they are. But if you get into a situation where uh, whoever has developed the ID for that uh, country or that county or that state uh, is is compromised and someone could get in there and you know, cast votes on behalf of someone else, uh, that, that opens a, a, a whole can of worms that uh, needs to be examined and uh, is something that obviously a lot of people are looking into the security implications of. Yeah, I think it's a really good point again, Danny. And of course, it's something that people will be mindful of. And what you've got to understand, we're operating our research project on a global scale, yeah? And governments in some of the areas that we're considering are maybe not as accountable as, as some of the Western governments and, and certainly may not be considered uh, as trustworthy. Um, and, and people, of course, have, have rightly got some trust issues uh, of governments in the Western world and the companies uh, that might um, develop systems for digital voting, for example. So, so this is all very uh, relevant to, to what we're interested in. 
And the first thing I'll say is, um, as a security researcher, is that if someone says, yeah, I'm going to build a system and this is completely 100% secure, um, I, I would call them out because you can't do that. What we need to do is minimize the risk. Um, so first of all, let's say with the voting that, that many people in, in the UK, where you and I are from, or in, in the US, um, that kind of voting system, I think people could work out how your um, vote may be cast by somebody else that isn't you, right? There, there, there are ways to do that. Um, we all know that with the, with, with the current vote card. Um, but one thing you might say is, well, the risk is okay because it's not going to happen at scale. Yeah, because you have to get that, 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 that ballot card and go, go in physically. And that is a risk when you do things digitally. But we have systems that can detect um, a number of um, the common compromises. And we're always looking to do what we call threat modeling. So we're constantly getting security researchers to try and break the systems that we develop. So these, you might have heard of penetration testers or red teaming um, of a system. And we will be looking at that in the Turing uh, Institute ourselves. We won't be doing penetration testing, but some red teaming. Um, but there are many companies that do um, penetration testing. And that's all with the aim of reducing this um, both likelihood uh, of compromises to the system uh, in terms of security and the integrity of, of, of the voting system, um, but also looking at minimizing uh, the impact if, if there is a breach. So security is something that, that is very, very important, quite rightly so, and it's one of these facets that we consider in trustworthiness, but it's much more than just security, Danny, because I, I think what people will also be concerned about with a digital identity system is, well, what about their privacy? Yeah. If there's these records uh, of, um, of interactions, let's call them, and that could be in, in terms of um, the current pandemic, could be contacts with other people, um, or it could be um, some kind of government interaction, such as voting, then privacy becomes really important. And I have to say that the academic community is, is, is constantly uh, looking at these issues. And some of the viewers might recall in the UK, when we first looked at contact tracing, we considered having a centralized approach. And this was a sort of centralized database. There was some, um, some security and some privacy embedded, but basically the contacts would be held um, more centrally. After a great discussion, there was a movement, if you recall, and Apple and Google also got involved in the discussion and the actual contact tracing that we've got now to reduce that risk, because that risk was seen to not outweigh the benefits of a centralized approach. So I say a centralized approach gives you a bit more information um, or, or can do. So it was seen as, as something that's a benefit, but it wasn't significant enough in terms of the fact that centrally, if all that data is held centrally, it might be breach security, or it might have somebody Rather than a security breach where somebody who shouldn't have access gets access, it might be compromised by somebody looking into that information, so compromising privacy when they shouldn't. So what we did is we moved from that centralized approach to a more decentralized approach, and that's how contact tracing works now. 
Um, so these kind of things are really important to us and um, they are all issues. These are design choices that we look at to try and minimize the risk and increase the trustworthiness. You raise a good point there, both when it comes to the, the security aspect and the privacy aspect. And what do these tell us about the risk of uh, blind trust in these systems? Because a lot, I guess a lot of people think, OK, you know, if this is a digital system uh, you know, and you know, the government is saying, oh, please use this. Uh, a lot of people might think, oh, this is perfectly uh, you know, secure and you know, there are no risks involved at all. Well, we've seen in many cases uh, around the world uh, this is not necessarily the case. So yeah, what, what are the risks of, of blind trust in this and what needs to be done in order to counter that? Yeah, well, I think if we understand, want to understand what the risks are. We really need to move away from the, um, the, the, the kind of description that we talk about where we say this is a trusted digital identity system because we all know we sometimes trust things that we shouldn't, right? We trust things, just as you say, blindly um, because somebody else has used it and they've told us, you know, that's trust, you know, it, it should be trusted or because a government says or because somebody else or because we just think, well, people will behave well. Like, you know, we thought Facebook might not give data the way that they did to Cambridge Analytica, right? So we thought in some sense uh, we could trust um, them in some sense. So what we're doing at the Turing actually is saying, but forget this thing about having a trusted digital identity system. Forget this thing about me having to trust um, Facebook's digital ID system or the UK government's digital ID system or um, any other government's digital ID system. Rather, what we should be saying is, how can the digital ID system assert its trustworthiness? So the idea is, that we, we, we define trustworthiness and use many, many definitions for it, over 300 just in the academic literature. Um, but the way that we define it is trustworthiness is about security, it's about privacy, it's about ethics, it's about reliability, robustness and resiliency. So they are the six facets and that's in the paper that I mentioned uh, at the start of this conversation. Yeah, and what we say is, okay, if a digital identity system can assert, make some claims and say, look, you, I am secure in this way. I am private because I do these things with your data. I don't look at this part of data. I am resilient because I can detect when I'm being compromised and I can react uh, to that and, and perform well under duress. If they make those claims, if the digital ID makers or um, the digital ID um, implementers or the governments that are proposing them or the um, private enterprise that are using them can say this is why my system is trustworthy then we can make an informed choice about whether we trust it it's our decision you know it doesn't become blind anymore but it's very transparent to us about what the system is doing and we can then make a more informed choice you mentioned the role of private companies here and it, you mentioned one particular case where a private company has maybe not uh, used data as you know, we you know, first expected. Uh, what, what are the sort of uh, things that need to be thought about when private companies are involved 
in these types of situations because you, know, you could have a private company divide they could be de developing it for themselves for their own platforms they could be contracted to develop a you know, digital id system for someone else i mean what things need to be thought about in terms of the private companies here when it comes to uh, secure, security and, and privacy and, and, and how we interact uh, with the world and how we can trust them with our data, if, if that's indeed possible. On the uh, Facebook Cambridge Analytica, I, I was commenting about how people trust and how it was different, the actions to, to what was expected and not really going into the whole issue about whether Facebook acted in, in some way or, or not. But the important thing instead here is to consider that these identity systems are multi-stakeholder, right? There's a whole supply chain involved, yeah? So if somebody's collecting our data, it's important that just so that we can trust um, or make a trust decision about the people we interact with, and in that case, Facebook, but it might be UK government, it might be um, the um, American government through a travel visa or something like that, yeah? What we have to do is we make a, a decision based upon the, the organization we interact with, but they need to do the same kind of thing with the people in their supply chain, right? So in, in, in that case, um, Facebook needs to make some decisions based around these principles of trustworthiness to say, can we really trust that uh, Cambridge Analytica in, in that sense is gonna act in the ways that, that we expect? And if you have this kind of assertion, it gives you something that's checkable, right? Because that's what we're trying to do, something that's measurable and something that's auditable. And, and that's what we try to do to understand what these risks are, both in our project and generally in, in the discipline, is something called threat modeling. So we look at the system, we look at what kind of threats. There's many techniques out, out there for this. Some of them very specific, looking at the... Um, tactics, techniques, and procedures that, that, that people might use to compromise the system. Others are quite high level, looking at what kind of goals there might be, uh, a more generic guess. But what we need to do is look at those threats, um, analyze the likelihood of something uh, being realized and the impact, and then try to minimize that risk. It has me thinking about a situation I found myself in earlier this summer where I was going to go to, uh, and I, was, I was wandering about and I thought, okay, that pub looks nice. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go sit there. And in order for me to, you know, order, I had to check in with the you know, NHS app as part of that thing. And the pub also wanted me to download their own specific app in order to make the orders and that sort of thing. And I ended up well, getting up and walking away, basically, because the the app of this uh, particular pub was, seemed to be want so much information that seemed to be not really relevant to the situation at all. I mean, they wanted things like me to upload a photo and that sort of thing to uh, to, to in order to, to get served. It was like it felt as if that okay, they were trying to make their own system in order to meet government uh, guidelines. But because there's no sort of real specifics about what they should and shouldn't have, uh, it, it got to the point where uh, the, this particular app and, and, and some other, uh, uh, other chains of pubs and restaurants have, have had um, comments about this as well, that they are somewhat overreaching. So I suppose what I'm asking here is that you know, uh, 
how can what 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 do companies need to be doing in order to make sure that when they are creating these systems they aren't uh, overreaching and that privacy is still uh, somewhat of an option because none of, no one wants, wants to hand over you know you know key aspects of their personal information just so they can eat a meal or have a drink uh, at a pub or restaurant yeah i think i think so a, a really good point and and there were of course these um abuses of the um, physical uh, methods for, for, for contact tracing, non-digital. So you'll remember before the app was ready, uh, people were asked to leave their phone number and their name uh, as they entered a premises, a pub or a restaurant. Um, and there's the, the, the case that was all over social media about a, a girl who had done that. And then one of the barmen from the uh, pub had actually uh, ended up messenger on, messaging her on social media and said, oh, he just got it from someone else. And he texted her as, as well. Um, and it was clear it had come from, or it was, it was thought that it had come from um, that list. So people had abused that. So it happens in paper-based, uh, just to say. But when people, uh, organizations say, you should download uh, an app, of course, you know, what they're trying to do is say, download this so that you can buy the drinks through an app, which is, has got some uh, legitimate purpose, of course. Um, but the um, UK government very specifically didn't want loads of apps um, to, to, to appear. And that's why they tried to encourage everyone to, to use the NHS app for where they had been and, and their contacts. Um, but as I said, the, the apps that are developed by pubs are not really to do the same thing, but rather to pay. And then what we've got to think about is, is this app um, being appropriate? And you mentioned about a photograph and things like that. Well, what this comes under is GDPR, you know, the, the thing that we all know. Um, there is regulation that they use data in the proper way. Of course, it becomes very difficult because um, the information committee office can't um, assess every single app that's out there and relies on people uh, reporting apps that are not acting within the regulation. They've got some pretty strong powers um, against uh, people that develop apps, but it still creates some kind of worry because there is that almost get out of jail part that says, well, it, I've got legitimate um, reasons for collecting certain data so your face for example when you have to upload a picture they would say that's to ensure because it's effectively a card holder not present interaction but then the question becomes well how long do they keep your your face for and that should be really a picture of your face and that should be really clear but sometimes it, it's not as clear so um certainly gdpr requires active consent in in many cases but if there is a case where there's legitimate uh reasons it, it may fall just outside of that need for consent so um it, it, it all comes back to that issue of, of trust and trustworthiness so it may well be danny that that was completely trustworthy that app i don't know if it's all i don't know which pub you went to but certainly in that case you didn't trust it enough to make that uh, judgment and that's why we're saying if there was a metric and it had a nice little thing and said Hey Danny, here's this happened. This is how it, it, it does things, and it's really nice and clear to you. Might say, "Ah, oh, okay, I'll trust it." You, you'd make a more informed choice. Do you see what I mean? 
And I suppose to uh, sum up, really, as that leads on to this point, so, so what, what steps need to be taken to ensure that uh, there is uh, trust and security in digital identity systems going forward? And so not, not just here in the UK where we are, but also around the world, as you've also touched upon. Yeah, so, so that we are hoping to contribute to it in our programme of work funded by the, the, the Gates Foundation. What we want to do is define what trustworthiness means. We want to create a framework by which people can measure and communicate the trustworthiness of digital identity systems. This is going to be released under Creative Commons. Uh, we're already speaking to various governments. So we've already spoken to, for example, the, the Philippines government about how they're um, developing their national identity and rolling out national identity system so that we can see um, how trustworthy it is. They can have metrics, real metrics to measure um, the privacy explainability, the resilience of their system, and that they can compare one version and a different version. So, so maybe they've got two designs that they're looking at and they can find out, well, which one is slightly more secure or slightly more private? You know, you may not get one that's, you know, the optimum privacy or security or explainability, but it's got the right mix um, for, for the population that you're serving for the purposes that you're using and for the government that's issuing it, but also that it can be best be communicated clearly. So we're trying to develop that. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, and it requires working hard with the, the many great um, private companies, non-government organizations, um, government agencies around the world to make sure that we have a concerted and coordinated effort to create trustworthy digital identity systems. Well, it's a fascinating area. Uh, thanks for joining me, uh, Professor Maple, on ZDNet Security Update. And for uh, more information on this subject, you can, of course, look at the Alan Turing Institute uh, website for more on this research. And there's more on security and privacy on ZDNet.com. Thanks for watching.